All right, you can have a seat for those of you in the room. If you're standing up at home, you can do that as well. Thanks, John, for leading us in worship today. It is so good to be together. If you've been around this fall, you know that the Asker family is playing fantasy football. So my three kids, my wife and my father and I are all playing fantasy football. And you might uh, know that I am at the bottom. I'm still losing every single week. Uh, I'm not bitter uh, completely, but I am projected to win today, so hopefully I can pull one out. But what's interesting about fantasy football and our family is that it provides some opportunities to taunt one another, And it also provides some opportunities to learn how to deal with some anger. So occasionally a conversation turns and we have to talk about, well, was that really helpful to say in that moment? Um, So it helps us talk about how do we treat one another well? And that's great because life is full of opportunities that we have to learn how to treat one another well because there are all sorts of difficult people in our world. And every one of us can name a person or a thing that somebody said that just irked us, just got down deep under our skin and really got us mad, frustrated, angry. And when we, you know, we experience anger in all sorts of ways when, when people threaten us or attack us or when when we're, when we're frustrated because we just feel powerless. We experience anger when we feel invalidated, when we're somehow treated unfairly. And when people aren't respecting our feelings or when they're not respecting our possessions, we can get super angry at people. And I'm willing to bet that the person that you thought about when I said we can all think of somebody probably has done that multiple times. Because we all have difficult people in our lives that we live with. And it's a good thing that Jesus talked a lot about this. And in today's sermon, we're looking (coughs) at how Jesus talked about how to deal with difficult people. And we're in this sermon series called Unexpected. It's a series walking through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Uh, We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today. If you want to grab a Bible device or a Bible and open that up, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. So this sermon series called Unexpected is Jesus's greatest teaching. His original listeners would have been left wondering, wait a second, Am I in or am I out? Because he starts this whole thing off with a list of people that he blesses. And the people that he's blessing are not the people that they would have expected him to bless. They were people who were poor. Didn't God bless the people who had material wealth? They were people who were struggling with the kingdom of God. And didn't God bless those people who were part of the kingdom here on earth? Well, last week we got into this idea around what are the rules then to enter the kingdom? And it was unexpected again because, surprise, 
It's about complete dependence on Jesus. The more we depend on Jesus, the better. And the more we depend on Jesus, the more kingdom influence that we have. But that just didn't make sense to them. They thought it was about following the rules, the Torah, the law, the things that they had been told to do. And if you did enough of those things right, then maybe you get into heaven. But Jesus is saying, no, this is about dependence on me. And it totally blew their minds. So this week, we're going to jump into this idea of how we deal with people around us. How we deal with difficult people. And you know what's interesting is that the way that we deal with difficult people around us actually influences our ability to be salt and light, which is what we talked about last week. So, we're going to jump in to the text, and he begins by quoting an Old Testament Ten Commandment that you might be familiar with. He says, you've heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now that first part is part of the Ten Commandments. That second part is kind of a summary of the, the law that they had in Numbers chapter 35, verses 16 through 18. They talk through all of the things that happen when somebody murders somebody. And it was clear that if you murder somebody, you get judgment. In fact, the judgment is death, so a life for a life. This is the law that they were living under. So they all were like, yeah, they're nodding along. That's right. You murder somebody, you die. That makes sense. Now, they also did have law that if you did it sort of unintentionally, like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I didn't mean to do that, you could flee to a city of refuge first, and then the trial would happen. But long-term, essentially, you were banished. You were banished to that city of refuge for the rest of your life, and you could not rejoin your community. So this is what they're thinking about when he says this opening line, and they're agreeing. They're going, yeah, that's right. You murder somebody, you get death, or you get banishment. But Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Ooh. And that judgment, that word there, is the same exact word that he's using in that earlier segment. So they're going, wait a second. This doesn't make any sense. Again, he says, anyone who says to her brother, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So this is unexpected. They don't get it. They're like, this doesn't make sense. You're using that judgment as the same thing that you're calling will happen to me if I get angry as the person who murders somebody? Nobody saw this coming. They all, they all understood that murder required some sort of punishment, but now Jesus was saying that anger was subject to that same punishment, and it sort of blew their minds. Both murder and anger lead to judgment. It's crazy. So judgment. In the Old Testament, this idea of judgment for somebody was this idea that they would either be banished or they would be killed. But they did have the two degrees. If you did it intentionally, it was clear that you were going to be put to death. If there's sort of the unintentional side of things, then you might get just banished. And if you think about it, we sort of have a similar thing going on in our culture today with murder. We try to categorize murder into three categories, right? First degree, second degree, and third degree murder. 
First degree murder is intentional and you get punishment for that. Second degree is sort of this, well, I maybe did it in a fit of anger, but it was mostly in self-defense. You just got, you know, I didn't plan it out ahead of time, like uh, stage one, right? Stage two is like, I didn't think about it ahead of time, but man, I was really mad and I killed you. And then we sort of give this third category where it's like, you know, if you accidentally do something, you know, if you're, you know, playing with your friend or something and, you know, you accidentally push them and they go falling off a cliff or something, right? Like, there's that unintentional, there's no plan, there's no anger or malice in your heart. And that's the third uh, degree of murder that we have. So it's interesting, they had two, we have three. So sort of interesting. What was interesting to me too was that in that, we're trying to make a judgment about the person's intent. And I don't know about you, but whenever my kids are mad at each other and they say, well, he did it on purpose, I'm always like, wait a second. We don't know the heart. We don't know if they did it on purpose. We can guess, but we don't know for sure. But we try to do that with our murder as well. We try to guess the intent of somebody. So it's sort of interesting. Well, in the end of verse 22, he talks about this pit of hell. And the word for that is Gehenna. And it, I, it conveys this idea of future punishment. And originally, this Gehenna was a place outside of the city in a valley where they would throw all the filth and the dead animals and they were cast out to be burned. Sort of this idea of banishment. So in this culture and in our culture, we try to figure out how to handle these different intents in murder. But Jesus knows that anger leads to murder. So he doesn't stay at the murder. He takes it to the heart of it. And in this passage, we see anger happening in two different ways. We see it happening in this sort of right, uh, sorry, I want to back up and talk about righteous anger first. So we'll see the two angers happening, but first I want to talk about righteous anger. There's there is such a thing as righteous anger where we can actually get mad at things that are wrong and evil. Romans 12 reminds us to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good. So there are times where anger is good. So I, I want to point that out. But what he's talking about here is a different kind of anger. And what's, what's happening first in this passage is this anger in the heart. There's sort of this invisible anger that's happening and this is what precipitates murder. It devalues other people in our heart, and we sort of say, yeah, you're not worth it. You're not worthwhile. And then the second kind of anger that we see happening in this passage is in our words. This is the visible kind of anger. And the words that are shown here, the examples that are given is raka, which is this phrase that means you idiot. So he's saying, if you say you idiot in anger, you're essentially murdering them. And if you say, you fool, you're essentially murdering them because you're devaluing that person. You're saying you're not worthwhile. And for me, mostly, my anger is the invisible kind. You won't hear me say things often out loud that sound like you fool. But that can happen in my family from time to time. And what Jesus is saying is that those things are essentially killing that person. They're devaluing that person to the point of killing them. And he's saying that unhealthy anger is so detrimental to, to the kingdom of God 
that you're actually living the opposite of the kingdom of God. And the opposite of the kingdom of God is hell. And that's what that Gehenna was. It was this idea of this fiery pit of hell. And that idea of hell, really simply put, is life without God. And so when we get angry at someone, we are essentially living the opposite life of the kingdom, and we are living with life without God. So the question for us is, how often are we in danger of living out the opposite of the kingdom of God? Getting angry with somebody in our heart or in our words. How often do we assassinate somebody's character with our words or even with our minds? The good news is that we are not banished. God doesn't banish us when we do those things. We actually run from him. We run away from him because we're embarrassed that we do these things. But God pursues us. He gives us multiple chances. And that list of people at the beginning, those are people that they thought weren't worthy, but Jesus was inviting them into the kingdom, and Jesus is inviting us into the kingdom as well. And he t- gives us an alternative to anger. So instead of getting angry, he invites us into something different. And in verses 23 through 26, we're going to see what he invites us into. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go to be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So reconciliation is the antidote to anger. It's so important that Jesus suggests that if you are worshiping God and you remember that you have something against somebody, if you remember that there's some anger, some unresolved tension, if you're worshiping God, leave right then and there and go and be reconciled with the person. It's that important. It's more important than worship. I would argue that it is worship, but it's more important than the, than the sacrifice of worship, or in our day, it's more important than the singing and, and the serving. He goes on to say, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's talking to you, or who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer. And you may be thrown into prison, Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So what's interesting in this section is that that first sort of antidote was if you are angry with your brother or sister. That idea of brother or sister is this idea of our family of God. So in the family of God, we need to be reconciled with one another. But in this one, it says, if you're having trouble with your adversary, your enemy— So this is outside the family of God that God wants us to live in reconciled relationships with one another. Living a life of reconciliation with everyone. Now, I do want to take a note, uh, a pause, and think about, for those of you who have experienced abuse, this is not a word to go and talk to that person. We want to live reconciled lives with people, But Celebrate Recovery puts it this way, and it has some great resources if you're dealing with that. It talks about reconciling with everyone unless it causes more harm. So just a word, we want to live reconciled lives, and that's what this is calling us to. 
But if you're dealing with abuse in any way, shape, or form, there are other ways that you can get help to work on that. And Romans 12, 18 reminds us, as far as it is possible, so it may not be possible, live at peace with everyone. So it may not be possible, but if it is, we want to live lives of reconciliation with others. And if you can be reconciled, this passage tells us, do it quickly. Do it as fast as you can. Leave your worship. Settle it before you get to court. Reconcile things as quickly as you can. Ephesians 4, verse 26 says, In your anger, do not sin. So there's a way that we can be angry and not sin, but a lot of anger does lead to sin, which is part of what Jesus is talking about here. And he says, the second part of that is, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And so when Sandy and I were going through marriage counseling, we got this great advice. Don't go to bed angry at each other. And by and large, Sandy and I have lived that out. We make sure to resolve our conflict before we go to bed. Now, I will tell you that there have been some very late nights. But by and large, we have always worked to resolve the conflict before we go to bed, before we lay our heads down for the night. We've argued well into the night, but we've worked to resolve our conflicts. And God wants us to live reconciled lives. And how we live with difficult people matters. It matters in the kingdom. But the good news is that God wants us to be reconciled. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 reminds us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this is a pattern that Jesus has too. While we were still sort of making God angry, so to speak, or doing things that were angering him, he died for us. Jesus is wanting to be reconciled with us. And because he forgives us, we also ought to forgive one another. Because we are forgiven, we can forgive one another. And we're created in the image of God. We're all created in the image of God. And so when we call somebody stupid, when we call them a fool, we are tainting and devaluing the very image that God has imprinted on that person. We're not allowing them to be the full image of God that he has called each of us to be. We are all valuable. So how do we live reconciled lives? Well, we keep short accounts. We don't let it fester. We make sure that we try to make things right as quickly as possible. When we, if we remember while we're worshiping, we do it. Or while we're driving, we go and be reconciled. A quick word about how we reconcile with one another. If you're hurt, you say to the person directly, either over the phone or in person, when this behavior happened, I felt this. I felt this emotion. And we struggle because we don't feel the other person's emotions. And if we can bring them into that, we can help them to understand what we're feeling. Another way that I think about how to be reconciled with some person 
is to think about the contribution game. This is another thing that Sandy and I learned in our marriage counseling. When you are at odds with somebody, it is very rarely completely my fault or the other person's fault. But we quickly try to move to, well, you did this. Or it's all my, you know, the other person, it's all your fault. And what we need to move to is more of a contribution game. I contributed in these ways. I see you contributing in these ways. And for us to both own our contribution to the conflict. Those are important things. There's lots of other resources in terms of how to reconcile with one another. I think the key in this passage is that we do it quickly. And then we have a challenge for you this week. We're calling it the Crossview Challenge. So in the next week, when, I say when because it will happen, when you are tempted to get angry at somebody, when somebody does something that makes you mad or kind of makes you like, we want to challenge you to think of the fact that that person is made in the image of God. And instead of yelling, you fool, in your head or out loud, would you bless them, either in your head or in your words? Somebody that makes you angry, would you bless them this week? That's our challenge to you this week. Uh, Alice Mukarundi, I think I got that close, uh, is a woman from Rwanda. In 1994, Rwanda had 100 days of mass killings along ethnic lines. She lost her daughter. She lost her right hand. And she said, all those years, I looked at the Hutus. They were divided between the Hutus and the Tutsis. She was a Tutsi. She looked at the Hutus, were, who were primarily the ones who were killing the Tutsis, as the ones that did this to me. I prayed to God that if I could meet the one person, I would shift the blame from all these people, the, the Hutus, to this one man. And then she met him. She said, when I first saw him, I was so traumatized, I had to be taken to the hospital for 10 days. It was not easy. But World Vision had a program that brought the Hutus and the Tutsis together to share their feelings. They shared about the, the harm that had been caused to the ways that they lived their lives. She says, later I managed to forgive him. I believed it was God's power, in part because she could hear the feelings and the things that he was wrestling with. He couldn't handle the fact that he had done these evil things, and he was trying to make amends. And now together, they're working on rebuilding their community. They've built hundreds of houses in their community. They've built wells. And as they do these things, they create a new community, and they reconcile with one another. It's an amazing story of reconciliation. There are multiple stories. You can check out World Vision. And this is a partnership that we have, Crossview, with World Vision in the, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. There are people that we are helping to live out that reconciliation. And my hope is that we too can live that out, that kind of reconciliation for the things that make us angry, for the details that we experience in our lives that make us angry for the difficult people in our lives. Let's pray. God, we all deal with difficult people and we need your help. 
We need your help to see them as you see them, as people created in the image of God. And no doubt, we can be the difficult person sometimes, and we need your help. We need your forgiveness. Would you help us to be reconciled people, to live in right relationship with one another? Amen.